Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. Support this podcast, go to www.nakedbibleblog.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 56, Acts 20 and 21. I'm your layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, how you doing this week? Very good. Very good. Good to be back. We had a, had a lot of good feedback at the, uh, on the last show, too. Yeah, doing an interview definitely was fun and changes things up, and I'm, I'm looking forward to doing more of them. Yeah, well, we'll definitely do that again. Well, that sounds good. Well, let's just jump in here. We got two chapters uh, to cover. Again, just as our method is, if you're a newbie, when we cover two chapters, we more or less just pick a few things out of each one, uh, at least try to pick out something that's interesting, at least interesting to me, hopefully interesting to you, uh, as we get into the story. Now, uh, these two chapters really are Paul's sort of last go-round with a lot of the churches, the regions uh, in which he administered. Uh, We're going to get a sense very clearly, pretty explicitly, in fact, uh, as we go through here, that Paul knows uh, that this is the case. Uh, He's headed toward Jerusalem, and he knows he's never coming back to this this region, this this area. And we're going to talk, use that to, to talk about, again, Paul's sense of ministry, you know, what, what he really, how he really thought about his own missionary task, you know, what uh, God wanted him to do. We've talked about that before, but there are some things in here that will really lend themselves to that. So let's jump in here. In Acts 20, we'll skip the first few verses. Again, it's more just a historical itinerary. I want to get down to verse 7, because this is the beginning of the story of Eutychus, okay, which most uh, Bible readers are going to be familiar with. Verse 7 says, On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. Of course, Luke is narrating all this. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. In other words, Paul got a little windy. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. We'll just stop there. So that's verses 7 through 12 in Acts 20 again. Most people know this story. Uh, I mean, I've heard it preached in, in a rather uh, humorous way. The, the word here for lad, the young man, pais in Greek, uh, indicates he. it's likely he was somewhere between 8 and 14 years old, so preteen or teenager. And, you know, it, it, it sort of lends itself to some, some comic discussion, comic relief, that sort of thing. I've never heard it preached, though, for what it really is, the way it really functions. And that is, it plays a significant role in telegraphing Paul's apostolic authority. 
And this is a theme we've seen before in Acts, where Luke will write something, either include an event or write something in a certain way, so that for the reader, again, or the listener, the alert reader and the listener, will be thinking about something Paul is doing or saying, and will sort of instinctively or intuitively see certain things as mirror imaging of other apostles, namely Peter. And that is designed, again, to, to cast Paul in the same role, to put Paul in the same status. And you say, well, why does Paul need that? Why does Luke need to do that? Well, you know, think about Paul. Paul began his career as a persecutor, essentially a terrorist of the, of the early church. And so, you know, th- this is something that, again, Luke probably thinks needs to be done, needs to be reinforced. You know, Paul is the good guy. Look at the great things Paul's doing. And he's not only doing great things, but he is at the level of, of an apostle. He is an apostle. He's just like Peter. Peter's not above him. They're, they're, they're colleagues. They're, they're, they're parallel uh, figures. So there's, there's Paul's background, again, that needs a little PR, a little help. And then there's also the fact that Paul was not one of the original 12. We talked about when we began our study in Acts, you know, how important it was when they replaced Judas to replace him with someone who had been with the Lord, been in that, in that company for that, those, that three and a half years that, where Jesus was walking around Canaan ministering, uh, how important it was to pick someone who had been among the other, you know, the original 11, but had traveled around and, and, and been with Jesus personally, you know, been with him in the flesh, you know, so to speak. Now, Paul, again, in his, in his own testimony, his own conversion experience, and of course, uh, what we read in Luke and, and, and hinted at elsewhere in Paul's own letters, did have that experience. He was not with the 12, but he, he you know, encountered the Lord directly and claimed to have been taught directly by Jesus. So, you know, in view of that, in view of his sort of outsider status, Johnny-come-lately status, Luke, you know, feels the need on occasion, and again, this is inspired material so that the Spirit, you know, prompts him to, to make these sorts of choices to reinforce Paul's apostolic standing, his authority. And this incident, again, as comical as it might be, or it seems like a throwaway incident, actually serves to do that, and, and it even ups the ante because it, it harkens back to certain things in the Old Testament, specifically some of the most famous prophets of the Old Testament. So, uh, this this is all designed, again, to to elevate Paul's standing as an apostle, to make sure that you know, he's on an e- equal par you know, with the original 12. So let, let's just jump into this a little bit. The last time we saw this was back in Acts 19, so just an episode or so ago. Remember the, the account in Acts 19 where they encounter some people who Paul deemed needed to be rebaptized, uh, so that the, you know the, the the spirit of God you know would come upon them, and again, and this this whole idea that this this sort of thing happens again to connect believers that they encounter with the original Pentecost event, so that everyone knows both the people you know who were historically on the scene and also the reader knows that. These events, these testimonies, these believers, this is all the work of the same spirit. This is all part of the same game plan. So when we were back talking in, in Acts 19 about this, this issue where baptism is associated with the spirit, and Paul, again, rebaptizes you know people and, and the spirit comes, we talked about how the only times that you really see the spirit mentioned in connection with the act of baptism, it, it doesn't occur every time somebody's baptized. The only time you specifically see this, these two things put together are with Peter. Peter back in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized. And then, of course, the Spirit comes. That's the, the sermon at Pentecost. 
Peter in Acts chapter 8, Peter in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. Uh, again, this is something that you would associate, this combination, with Peter. Well, when you get to Acts 19, Paul had baptized people before, Acts 16 and 18, but in Acts, in Acts 19, this is the first time he encounters converts who knew only John's teaching and John's baptism. So when Paul rebaptized them in the name of Jesus and the Spirit again comes upon them, it validates their testimony again and, and, and all of these events as being from the same Spirit. It takes it right back to Acts chapter 2. This is all part of the same program. So that same sort of thing is going to happen here in 20 with Eutychus, even though it doesn't concern baptism. So if we go back to verse 7, look at some of the elements. They meet on the first day of the week. Now, this is likely, again, Luke is a Gentile. Uh, this is, he's likely using the Roman reckoning, sunrise to sunrise. The, the meeting takes place at night. So, Sunday night, the day following you know, the Sabbath. Uh, this is actually, in, curiously, interestingly, the first mention of such a gathering on a Sunday, uh, the day following the Sabbath, you know, when they're meeting to break bread, apparently, again, to either celebrate communion. Uh, we read later uh, around verse 11, when Paul broke bread and had eaten. Might just be only the Lord's Supper there, communion. It, it may have had the, the feast attached to it, like we read in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, but again, this the, uh, associating that practice with Sunday, again, the day after the Sabbath, first day of the week, this is the first time we see that. They were meeting at night, so I think odds are pretty good that they had chosen a night meeting, not just because of scheduling, but also perhaps to commemorate the Last Supper that was held in the evening. And that, that would have been something uh, that would have helped people, as Paul would put in 1 Corinthians 11, this do in remembrance of me, the same night on which the Lord was betrayed. Again, it's sort of recreating the event uh, in, in that way, you know, for, for the believers gathered there to remember what had happened. Uh, so they take takes place at night. One of the, uh, you know, sort of things you could miss in passing is where it takes place here in Acts 20. They, you know, first day of the week, they're gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them and intending to depart. The next day, he prolonged his speech until midnight. And then in verse 8, we read, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Well, you know, who cares, Luke? You know, who cares what the place looked like? Who cares how it was decorated? Well, the mention of the upper room is interesting. Uh, Luke uses a, a, a pretty rare word uh, in, in Greek, the uh, huperpho. It's a noun. It's a word used only three other times in the New Testament. So it, its frequency is not not very much. And guess where the first? Guess where the other three? Uh, the other occurrences are. We get it in Acts one thirteen. The disciples were staying in an upper room immediately after Jesus' ascension. Okay, so the same word there. We see it in Acts nine thirty seven. And Acts 9.39, twice in the same story. And that's when a disciple named Tabitha, who was also known as Dorcas, dies and is laid in an upper room. There's the word. And then Paul, or Peter, excuse me, visits Tabitha and raises her from the dead. Again, happening in the upper room. So in Acts, this term describes a location where you get faithful believers gathered and where God does spectacular things. God, God is at work, and so there are a number of things you can you can sort of garner from this. Again, to the to the intelligent, alert reader of Acts, it's like, whoa, you know that that Gentile church in Troas, which is where this the story of Acts twenty takes place. God was the same God was working there as He was in the upper room back in Acts one when this all started. Well, Jesus appeared right right there before Pentecost. You know, there, there's this connection, there's this linguistic, this this vocabulary connection between this little Gentile church in Troas that nobody knows about and the one of the more significant events in the New Testament. Again, they both happen in this upper room. It also serves again to to link 
what happens here, this time with Paul as a vehicle, with what Peter had done, raising the dead, the, the dead girl Tabitha, Dorcas, in the upper room. Again, the, these are all deliberate things. You know, the, the, the Gospels and Acts are very deliberate in what they include. And again, the writers are intelligent about what they're doing, and they want readers to, they want to take their minds back to certain things. And this is, you know, I don't want to rabbit trail too much of this, but this is why, and I, and I consistently say this, and if people don't know me, if it's a new audience or whatnot, you know, you know I'm out speaking somewhere, they, they, I do tend to get the, the, you know, the two-headed look, like I say, look at you like you got two heads. But I say, look, one of the best things you can do is read your Bible like it's fiction. Because when you read fiction, when you read a novel, you instinctively know, your, your brain is just triggered as soon as you open it. You instinctively know that the writer is trying to intelligently do things to you. He's using words deliberately. There are scenes that you know you, you, something happens in a scene and you just intuitively know, I, I, I bet this is going to come back into play somewhere. I bet I'll see this scene again. I'll bet I'll see that character again. I'll bet I'll hear that line again. You just know that the writer's doing something to you intelligently, deliberately, trying to move you down a certain path. Hey, that's the way you should read Acts. That's the way you should read the Gospels. It's the way you should read most of the Old Testament, you know, the, the biblical stories, because they're intelligently put together. It, it's not random. They're, they're actually trying to do something. They actually have an agenda. They actually have, have a place they want to take you mentally. So let them do it. Again, train your mind uh, to do that. Read it like it's fiction. Anyway, we go down to verse 10 back in here in Acts 20. Eutychus falls out the window. Verse 10, Paul, now look at the, the, the succession of events here. Paul goes down. He bends over him, takes him up in his arms, and then says, you know, don't be freaked out. His life is in him. The word for life there is suke, which often gets translated as a spirit, sometimes as soul. But again, this is the internal life. You know, his life is still in him. He's, uh, his life is in him, not still in him, but is in him. So because of the wording here, most scholars feel that this is a genuine resurrection because the, the text doesn't say that he was taken up as though he were dead. It says he was taken up dead. And Paul says, hey, his life is in him. Not still in him like, oh, I'm detecting breathing here, you know, uh, anything like that. Because of the language, this is considered a true resurrection. And because of the sequence and some of the items in the sequence, it harkens back to other resurrection passages in both Testaments, Old and New Testament. There are elements here that recall uh, things that Jesus did in Luke 7 uh, with the widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter, again in Luke chapter 8. Lazarus, John 11. There, again, there are little elements. The, the closest parallels, though, are between the resurrection stories of here in Acts 20, Eutychus, and Elijah and Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 2 Kings chapter 4. And, of course, the, a, a close parallel here with what Peter does in Acts chapter 9. So the three closest parallels are Elijah, Elisha, and Peter. Again, Luke is doing this intelligently. Uh, the, the parallel with Elijah and Elisha is especially strong, you know, bending over the body, you know, stretching the, uh, the, the, the one, you know, Elisha, I believe, it's, is the one that stretches himself over the, the, the child, brings him back to life, and so on and so forth. That has a lot of linguistic parallels in the Septuagint and conceptual parallels back to what Paul is doing here in Eutychus. Now, so what's the effect of this? Let's say you're, you're someone who, again, knows you know, your, your Bible pretty well. Uh, you're an alert reader. You've, you've been reading the book of Acts, this long letter by Luke. You're, you're going to immediately recognize uh, some clues that take you back into the story of Peter. So right away, we have this Paul-Peter parallel. 
going on again. The whole point being Paul is at the same level as Peter. So that messaging is going to be there. But let's also say that you have a decent grasp of your Old Testament, whether it's you're a Jew who can read it in Hebrew or you're not, and you can you have to read it in the Septuagint. You're also going to see, again, hooks, various hooks back into those stories. And so what's the message? Paul is a true prophet. I mean, th- this, is what, this is what some of the most powerful, famous prophets in the Old Testament, they did the same thing. So again, it elevates Paul's status you know, within the community. He, he's not an outsider, even though, again, like Paul describes himself as one born out of due time, you know, outside of you know, where, when he wishes he was born because he you know, wanted to experience what the 12 experienced uh, when they experienced it. But having you know, been born you know, at the wrong time, again, in his own language, he, he, he's still in the same group. Again, this, the, this whole idea is important uh, to Luke and, of course, to the New Testament. Uh, in terms of Paul's status. Now, we get the story with Eutychus, and after that happens, verse 13, going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land, you know, because he wants to visit other churches. So we get a little bit of a, a travel itinerary again, verse 17. Uh, we get Miletus mentioned in Ephesus. They call the elders of the church to come and, and meet Paul. And he says to them, verse 18, let's just pick up here. Paul speaking to the elders, again, from the, uh, the church of Ephesus. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying, this is verse 21, both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, verse 22, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city. I mean, apparently the Spirit had had been telling Paul everywhere he went that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Again, so he knows when he goes to Jerusalem that there's something bad is going to happen there. He's going to suffer. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And, you know, he he goes on a little bit. They have a, a, a tearful goodbye. But you get the distinct sense that Paul knows that there's just bad stuff coming down the road. I mean, something wicked this way comes, and he, he just knows that he's going to run into something real serious, but he's going to go. He's going to go anyway. The Spirit has told him, you're going, you know, you're going to go up to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. You're going to go up to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. Uh, that becomes significant. If, if we, th- we think about this, go back to verse 22, you know, Paul says, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem because I'm constrained by the Spirit. Uh, literally, more literally, it, it would be bound in the Spirit, which could mean either constrained in his own spirit, but more likely means influenced by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he he is convicted. He is certain. He is being compelled by the Spirit to go, even though through the course of all these places he's already been. The Spirit has told him that when when you get there, again, something bad is going to happen. So now elsewhere, Luke has used similar language to describe what Paul's doing as a missionary. Acts 13.2, Verse, or also verses 4 and 9, Acts 16, 6 and 7, Acts 19, 21. Paul, again, 
has followed these prompts. He's followed these compulsions. At other times, the Spirit has forbid him from doing something, and he's been obedient. So he, he's not going to look at this and say, well, even though I know something bad's going to happen, I'm, I'm going I'm to shrink away, I'm not going to obey. He, he's not going to do that. And he's very clear he's not going to do that. So he, he's on his way to Jerusalem, again, compelled by the Spirit to go there. Now, again, let's just go back to verse 22 in the Acts 20 and, and re- reread that. He says, now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, again, not knowing what will happen to me there. He's not sure exactly what, but this one thing he's sure, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And then verse 25, three verses later, and then verse 29, he says, none of you that are hearing me say this are going to see my face again. So how does he know that? I mean, how does, how does he know that? I mean, we, we can say, well, he has a good sense of it uh, because he knows something bad is going to, going to happen. But this is something easy to miss. We have actually seen this spirit constraint idea before with respect to what Paul understands about his own ministry and destiny. He knows he's never going to return to these churches because why? We've talked about this before. He believes his path is to get to Rome. Okay? He's already said that a couple times. He believes his path is to get to Rome. And then when he's, if you recall, when he's on the way to Rome, he writes about this in the, in the book of Romans. When he's on his way to Rome, he talks about getting to Spain. Now, why is that significant? I mean, he, he, he knows, okay, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. That's part of, you know, I don't really know how, but that's part of how I'm going to get to Rome. And again, when he's on his way to Rome, he's like, okay, I got to get to Spain. Why does he think this way? It's because he has a firm grasp of his role in God's plan. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is the living fulfillment of Isaiah 66. And I I remember, you know, in earlier episodes, I posted an article or two about this. It's significant because Spain is Tarshish. Spain is Tarshish, and Tarshish is the westernmost point of the known world in the Old Testament times, specifically the table of nations, which are the nations that were produced from the judgment at the Tower of Babel that we read about in Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9. This is the outworking of the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, again, in Paul's mind, in his consciousness, in his, his, his mode of thinking. He knows that the, when the Most High divide the nations, he divide them up according to the number of the sons of God. Again, if you're new to the podcast, you need to go to the podcast website and watch the Divine Council worldview videos on both Testaments to, to know what I'm talking about here. That's why they're there. Paul is very conscious that he is playing a pivotal role to the nations, to those nations that God had disinherited before he raised up his own portion. Deuteronomy 32.9, Yahweh's own portion is Israel. He knows that, Paul knows he is, he is the key player in reclaiming that territory, in, 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 in getting people for the family of God out of all of those nations. And he, you know, I believe Paul very firmly believed that he would not die until he got to Spain, until he had accomplished uh, that part of of his mission, until his journeys made it so that every place in the known world at the time had heard the gospel. This is what Paul is talking about when he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. Okay, the Lord isn't going to come back yet. He's, going to, he's only going to come back when the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. You know, the fullness of the Gentiles is this thing that's, that's holding you know, the second coming back. You know, what Paul, of course, didn't know was that the world is a lot bigger than the Mediterranean. Okay, God, of course, knew that. Uh, and we, we have the same language. We have the same issue here. When will God look at the world and say, the nations have been reclaimed. 
every everyone that, that that I want in in my family that I intend to have in my family from the the Gentile nations. When when is that enough? Because when it is enough, then we get that language in Romans nine through eleven. Then all Israel will be saved. Then we'll go back to the Jew. Again, again, in popular end times thinking, you don't really hear a lot about this because people are using a newspaper to do their, their exegesis and their hermeneutics. This is what Paul was thinking. Paul wasn't, wasn't thinking about a 10-nation confederacy or anything like this. He's thinking about the fullness of the Gentiles. This is the key. This is the trigger. This is the, the, the climactic event. He, he, he thought he was living that out. He was the guy who was going to do that, and then the Lord would come back very much in his consciousness. Look at what he, he writes. We'll go back to Acts 19 in verse 21. It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. Okay, remember we, we just read Paul says in, verse, in Acts 20, where we are, in verse 22, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except it's going to be bad. Okay. Well, back in Acts 19, he said, you know, we, we read where Paul says, or Luke writes, you know, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Okay, he has this sense, again, of course I'm going there. I know it's going to be bad, but I have to go because when I go there, then I'm going to get to Rome. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I got to get to Rome. And then we read in Romans 15. This is his letter to the Romans. I hope you realize that Paul writes his letter to the Romans. He's never met them. He's never been to Rome. He writes this on the way. Because, you know, he, in the first few verses, he talks about, oh, I can't wait to see you and depart unto you some spiritual gift and, and all this sort of thing. Again, he, he, he's not been there yet. He's, he's eager to get there so that he can teach them and so on and so forth. But here's what he writes in Romans 15, verse 19. He says, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, again, I, this, all this is happening, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, places I've been, places that the, the, the other apostles have been. I, I don't want to do that, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. He quotes the Old Testament. And then he says in verse 22, this is Romans 15, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Basically, I had to, I had to go to these other territories because we're moving westward, you know, again, following the pattern of the table of nations. I had to do the job here first. And the Spirit of God knew that. He had to teach me that. He had to say, don't go here, go there. He said, I've, I've, I've been hindered from coming to you, but now... Since I no longer, this is verse 23 in Romans 15, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, <laughs> and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you, and catch this, this is a great line. He says to the Romans, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And then verse 28, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, again, the poor back in Jerusalem, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So he tells the Romans, look, I know I'm coming to see you, I can't wait, but you're really just a stop along the way to Spain. That's really where we're supposed to go. And again, he has this consciousness because he knows his Old Testament. In Acts 20, go back to Acts 20 again, look at what he says in verse 24. We'll read it again. We've read it two or three times already. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course, the ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I mean, th th this is just in the forefront of his mind. By the way, uh, I should, I should uh, say a note now, 
when when the Unseen Realm ships, I'm going to talk about this. When the, when the book is out, you'll be reading about this. Uh, make sure you go to the companion website that is associated with the book, because there are people, other scholars, who doubt that that Paul you know was understanding uh, the term Tarshish in Genesis 10, the Table of Nations, correctly as Spain, because Tarshish is descended from Japheth, you know, the sons of Noah there, the Table of Nations, Genesis 10, and Japheth's descendants are all associated with Greece. Well, how could it be Spain? You know, how could it be all the way to the west? You know, where Spain is now. If, if all the descendants here were of Greece, well, guess what? And there's there's evidence on on the companion website that didn't make it into the book, where Herodotus and other ancient writers write that Tarshish was under Greek control. Okay, by the time that this stuff gets written, and the Table of Nations as well, it was under Greek control. So it it, it makes perfect conceptual logical sense. Don't you know if if you run into that, you know, in the meantime, don't let that bother. It just popped into my head now, so I thought I'd share it with you. But going back to Paul, what, what, what is in Paul's head is like, look, you look, you Romans, man, you know, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to take a beating there. I don't know what's going to happen, but that's so that I can go to Rome and I can't wait to see you guys. But really, I'm not really going to see you. God isn't doing all this just to see you. I'm going to see you in passing on my way to Spain. That is the end game. And again, he thinks this way because of his knowledge of the Old Testament. So let's jump into Acts 21. And Paul keeps going, you know, he, he makes it again, you know, he keeps going on his journey. And let's just read the first few verses of, of Acts 21 so we can get that, that setting. When we had parted from them, again, the, the elders from Ephesus, he tells them they're not going to see each other anymore. Luke says, we parted from them, we set sail. We came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. So it's kind of a convoluted route, but now they're at least on, on the mainland there. And having sought out the disciples, and more disciples in Syria and Tyre, we stayed there for seven days, and through, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down the bench on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. So that the disciples are saying, hey, the Spirit of God, you know, we, you know, we're in touch with the Spirit too, and, and, and you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Well, it, it's not a contradiction because they know, because the Spirit has already told Paul that, that Bad things are going to happen in Jerusalem, and we're not told exactly how, but they're getting that sense too. And so they're warning Paul, and Paul's like, hey, I already know this. I already know this. The Spirit is revealing to Paul's friends and later to Agabus the prophet, we'll read in a few minutes uh, in Acts 21, that you go to Jerusalem and, and something awful is going to happen to you. Don't go. You know? and, and Paul's like, look, I already know this. I've, I've already gotten this information. I, I, I get it all the time. It, basically, everywhere I've gone, the Spirit has told me that I'm going to suffer when I go to Jerusalem. But I need to go there because of all this other stuff. I need to go there because that is the key to getting me to the end point, which is Spain. So he doesn't, doesn't go into all the details with them. But of course, as we just read in the book of Romans, you know, he, he lets them know. Again, this is, this is just what's in Paul's head. So let's just keep reading in Romans 21, or excuse me, Acts 21, verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had, mar- he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied while we were staying for many days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Okay, so Judea, I mean, this is obviously where Jerusalem's at. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. 
spare it again. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Now, Luke is not privy to what the Spirit, again, has been telling Paul. I mean, after the fact he is when he's writing this account of Acts, he is. But they're like, they're getting freaked out. Again, and Paul's like, I already know this. Paul answered, verse 13, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, he already suspects, as we know, that he's not going to die, but he knows it's going to be bad. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And I'm sure Paul said, amen. Yeah, let, let the will of the Lord be done. Again, he has this sense of what the end game is anyway, as bad as it's going to be. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. A couple things here. Philip's daughters, again, that, that's included in Luke's narrative, uh, in Acts 21 there, verses 7 through 9. Female prophets, you know, Philip's daughters, you know, who, who prophesied. Female prophets were not unknown in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, we, we get a few of those. Huldah, if you want to count, uh, you know, Deborah, I think is fair to, fair to count there. She was an oracle, oracular figure, as, lo- uh, as well as being a judge. I mean, we, we get this in the Old Testament. But female prophets were expected by the events of Pentecost, and they pop up in Acts and the epistles. Remember back in Peter's sermon when he quotes Joel 2, he says that, Joel says that the Spirit would be poured out on, on men and women. And this is not unexpected. So if you go back again and, and look at some of these references, you know, I just alluded to Acts chapter 2 there. Uh, when he quotes Joel, I'll just read it to you. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Okay? I mean, it, it couldn't be any clearer. You get uh, Luke... Uh, 2.36, Luke's own uh, gospel that he had written earlier. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So an allusion to Anna, a prophetess. First Corinthians 11.5, again, one of Paul's epistles. Every wife or woman, depending on your translation, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her own head. Again, it's just a reference to female prophecy. So this is not unusual in either testament. And again, if you're going back to Acts chapter 2, this just sort of goes with the turf, the pouring out of the Spirit. Let's go back to chapter 21 in, uh, let's say, verses 17 and following. So that's where we, we left off. Let's just read, again, some of what well, I'm, I'm going to skim a little bit here. I mean, when we had come to Jerusalem, verse 17, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And we had, they had met James before, Acts 15, the big Jerusalem council, all that. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul tells them, gives them an update. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So let's just stop there. You know, Paul goes in, he's meeting with James and the elders of the Jerusalem church. This is like the original church, okay? And we've seen that this church has the highest status, even though it's probably the poorest, because Paul's been collecting money for them through his travels. He gives them an update, and James and the elders are like, this is awesome. But then look, look look at what they say to Paul. They say, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews, of those who have believed. You know, the, we read that early in Acts where, you know, a few thousand on certain occasions had gotten saved. Well, that, that hadn't stopped. There are thousands and thousands of converts among the Jews in the Jerusalem church. These are be- Jewish believers. And James continues in verse 20, they are all zealous for the law and they have been told about you. 
that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles. I mean, the Jews that live somewhere else, the Jews that are out there living among the nations, they've, the Jews here who, who believe the gospel have heard about you, and, and, and they've heard things said about you, specifically that you tell the Jews who are living out there among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, verse 21, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? Verse 22, what, what should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So you, you, you can already sense you know, the, the storm brewing here. They, they will certainly hear that you have come. You know, what, what should we do? Verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We, we have an idea. We've been thinking about this. We have an idea. We have four men here who are under a vow. Why don't you take these men, this is verse 24, and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses. In other words, the, the vows they have to perform you. But let it be known that, that you're paying for them to do this Jewish stuff, okay? Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and they can complete their vows. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. You know, you're not out there saying, telling all the Jews to just junk the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, verse 25, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from, you know, that he goes, James repeats, you know, reminds Paul what had been done in Acts 15. So what does Paul do? Verse 26, Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them. You know, Paul takes James' advice and he went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia... Okay, these are the Jews who had given him trouble on his own missionary journeys months before, and in one place had stoned him. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Of course, we know the rest of the story. It just starts a riot. And Paul has to be saved by the Roman guards, the Roman soldiers there. He has to be taken away from the mob who were beating him and, and certainly going to kill him because they're thinking that this guy you know, hates Judaism. Hates the law, hates Moses. He's 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 you know he he's doing things to to circumvent it and to corrupt it. When that isn't the case at all. So I mean, look at the situation. You, know, you go back and 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 you know, to what James said. The Jewish population, the Jerusalem church, is significant. In Acts two through six, we get thousands of Jews responding to the gospel. James says, you know, we, we got thousands of among the Jews who believe. The Jewish believers again have been told. You know, that Paul teaches Jews living among the Gentiles to just ditch Moses, ditch the law, don't worry about circumcision, don't observe any of the customs, the festivals, and Paul's not doing any of that. You know, this is, again, this is the language of apostasy. They're, they're, Paul's being portrayed as an apostate, which is really not a good thing. And, and James, of course, knows it. So he's like, what, you know, what, we, we got to do something here. And again, just so that it's clear, the issue here in this narrative isn't what Gentiles do, because Acts 15 settled that. And of course, James brings that up. Luke's at, Luke you know, inserts that here into the narrative to make sure that you know, everybody understands that. We're not talking here about what Gentiles do. The question is what Jews should do. And, and these Jews who believed in the gospel have been told that Paul hates the law, and they just view that as apostasy. You know, they, they, it's not that they're not clear about the gospel. It's that what goes on in the Jerusalem church. We don't do that here. We, 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 we observe vows. We observe feast days. We circumcise our kids. Who is, this, who is this lunatic Paul running around all over the world and the other nations when he meets Jews telling them not to do this stuff? That's just horrible. And of course, that isn't you know, what, what Paul is doing. I mean, if we go back and look at what you know, Paul actually does do in 1 Corinthians 7.18, Paul 
teaches the teaches Jews not to undo their circumcision. Although in verse 19 of the same chapter, he notes that circumcision really isn't, it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. He says the same thing in Galatians 6, around verse 15. Paul, when, when Paul talks about the law, he downplays the law, and he, instead he deals with soteriology. He deals, deals with salvation. You know, basically the law is a good thing, but it's useless if you don't have Jesus. It's useless if you don't have Christ. It's useless if you don't have salvation. You know, if, if you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, you can keep the law all day long. It's not going to do anything for you. If you do know Christ is Messiah, well, if you're a Jew, then then do those things. But understand that they don't have anything to do with salvation. If if this you know draws you closer to God, fine. The Gentiles don't need to do this. We're not going to turn them into Jews. And again, that goes back to the Acts 15 issue. So Paul doesn't diss the law. He just has his doctrine of salvation correct is what it really comes down to. And we, we know Paul was sensitive to this. You know, he has Timothy circumcised. You know, we, we, we read that in, in, a, in, a, in a previous episode. Uh, he's sensitive to the situation, but he's also very clear and uncompromising on what the gospel is and isn't. But he's being slandered here in the Jerusalem church. And of course, James comes up with this idea, you know, to, and, and it was a good idea, and it worked until the Jews from Asia showed up, just right as the whole thing was about to end. And you say, well, didn't, you know, did this take Paul by surprise? I mean, he knew bad things was, were going to happen. Well, yes, he did. You know, he didn't know the specific circumstances. And, you know, he, he actually takes the occasion, as we're going to see next time when we get into Acts 22. He takes the occasion to do what? Remember when, he, when he's being carried away, away from the mob, he says to the Roman soldier, hey, let me talk to the crowd. He's going to preach to them. <laughs> I mean, he, he's going to do what he, he does everywhere else. He's going to make sure that everybody knows why he's there, who he is, and what he really teaches, and what they need to hear. I don't want to really rabbit trail into what, what the vow was. There's, there's three or four different options for this. We talked about this before when, when Paul himself had his own vow. But in that case, it was probably, again, something related to maybe a Thanksgiving offering for the Lord telling him he wasn't going to be hurt in, in Corinth and, and things like that. Well, here, you know, because of the shaving of the head, it might be a Nazarite vow. And again, that, that might apply to what Paul said earlier. That's one option. Uh, others, again, you know, think it's, you know, has something more to do with a, a, a personal issue, uh, maybe a, a point of uncleanness. We don't know why these four four guys that Paul, James says, hey, take these four guys are already under a vow here. We don't really know what their circumstance is. Maybe it's Nazarite. Maybe it's some other, you know, point of, you know, ritual uncleanness. We're not really told, but he says, well, Paul, you know, go in with them, you know, and, and, and pay for their vows so that everybody knows that, that you're, you're happy they're doing this and, and you're, it's at your expense and you, you know, go in there and, and, and do what needs to be done with them so that people know that you're not out there just dissing the law. You know, it's important for Jewish believers to know that. And again, it almost works except for when the Jews of Asia show up. So again, we're, we're familiar with this story. And I think when we meet next time, we're going to save, you know, the rest of this for next time. But he, he, uh, you know, beckons, you know, to the tribune and says, hey, can I speak to the crowd? And that's what he does. And so we'll pick up next time with that. And if you recall, earlier podcast episode, I think it was uh, when, we t- when we talked about Acts 14. Uh, Acts 14 is, is the, the, the chapter where Paul alludes to, well, he, he alludes to something happening 14 years ago uh, in his life. That's going to factor in here in Acts 22. It also factors into 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul has, has this vision you know, of, of, of the, uh, the, the divine realms. And if you remember back when, when Paul was stoned, when we were in Acts 14, wondering about whether he had a near-death experience and what that was. And I, I made the comment at the end of that episode that probably the best option 
is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 12, this vision he has. It goes back to a vision he has, or he alludes to. Let's put it that way. He alludes to here in Acts 22. So next time, we'll get into what Paul says to the crowd. We'll get into this issue of, of this vision he had in Acts 22. And we'll backtrack to some of those things and uh, you know just sort of round out the picture there. Okay, sounds good, Mike. So next week, looking forward to Acts 22. I just want to remind everybody to support the podcast. Please go to our website, nakedbiblepodcast.com, support page, take you straight to our Patreon page, and we certainly appreciate those people who have contributed. Mike, is there anything else you would like to yes. talk about for the show? No, I don't think so. I mean, we'll, we're it's kind of amazing we're up to Acts 22 already. Um, I don't really have a, a, a great idea of when we'll be done with Acts, um, but... You know, we want to have some interviews. We want to do some Q&A. So Trey will figure all that out. Let me know and we'll go from there. Okay, well, it sounds good. I just want to thank everybody for listening to another episode of the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.